This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. Today, we are joined by the B-lister, Mr. Mike Ippolito, my co-founder at BlockWorks, Santiago. Kind of you. <laughs> Santiago's taking a break from the pod for the day. Now, he had a, a couple of board meetings to attend to, so Mike is, Mike is stepping in. Uh, and today, we are very lucky to be joined by Jeff Dorman, the CIO at ARCA, one of the most respected uh, funds in the space. But really, just Jeff is, in my opinion, one of the most uh, respected and thoughtful um, and often contrarian investors in, in all of crypto. I uh, spent about 15 years, maybe maybe a little longer uh, on Wall Street, I think at Merrill Lynch, uh, Lehman Brothers, Citadel, uh, and then joined ARCA back in 2018 and, and has just been leading the charge for, for crypto investing since then. So Jeff, welcome, uh, welcome to Empire, my friend. Thanks for having me, and thanks. Uh, I, I got a much more ceremonial uh, uh, intro than just be called, being called a B-lister. So I appreciate that. That was nice. Of, of all the monikers that Jason has given me over the years, B-list is one of the kind of ones. So I'll yeah, take it. Yeah, you should see what I call him on. Uh, yeah, yeah, when, when we're not Private. recording here, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome, Jeff. Can you see this? Uh, can you see this chart here? Yes. Awesome. So this is what I want to jump into first. We just had Travis Kling on the podcast, and and this was one of the big topics that we talked about is just the correlation between Bitcoin and the NASDAQ. Uh, right now, there's about a 95% correlation. If you look back over the last couple of months, it's really trading in Bitcoin is trading in tandem with, with the NASDAQ. And my first question for you is just, when does this snap? When does this correlation break away? Well, don't forget, I mean, there's a reason that this is so concerning to people, right? It's concerning to people because we've been calling Bitcoin an uncorrelated asset for the last five years. So all of a sudden, because for the last four months, it's so highly correlated to the NASDAQ, people are freaking out. But the reality is you could have had these exact same conversation five different times with five different assets over the last five years. You could have run, you could have run the same chart versus the US dollar three years ago. You could have run it versus the Chinese yuan two years ago. You could have run it versus um, gold four years ago, right? The definition of a uncorrelated asset is that the correlations, you know, are, are, are not consistent. And that's the same thing today, right? Just because we have a high consistency with the NASDAQ right now, that, that also is not a consistent relationship because that wasn't the case, you know, five months ago, two years ago, four years ago. So it will eventually break, um, you know, just like it has with every other asset that we've shown high correlations to over the past five, six years. Um, in terms of when or why, um, I think a lot of it has to do with the type of people that are in the market, right? So when you have um, new entrants to the market, and largely uh, most of them are macro funds, um, specifically who are getting into Bitcoin, right? You have a few traditional you know, credit funds and equity funds here and there. But for the most part, most of the new money that has come into the space has been macro funds, right? Macro funds are more correlated than necessarily the assets they trade, meaning they're all doing the same thing, right? They're all looking at rates. They're all looking at the dollar. Uh, they're all looking at commodities. So they're all doing the same thing. And when you have retail largely you know, leaving the market for the last three to four months, 
Um, you've had most of the new money coming into digital assets coming in specifically into venture rather than into liquid funds. Um, you just have an, an environment right now where it's being dominated by a few players that all do the exact same thing and look at all the same things. So to me, it has nothing to do with Bitcoin versus NASDAQ. It has to do with when new players are going to enter that are not macro funds, right? So for instance, Fidelity just talked about, um, you know, having, uh, allowing uh, some of their 401k um, customers to be able to buy Bitcoin. Um, you know, who knows if more corporate balance sheets will get involved in Bitcoin? Who knows if more governments will get involved? Um, you know, it, there's all these different players that are not touching Bitcoin today that could be in the future. And if that happens, that will be what breaks the correlation. I've, I've, there was a lot to unpack there, Jeff. So I, I got a couple of questions for you, just because you're one of the few guys uh, who can both speak deep in the weeds about crypto, but also, uh, you know, speak compellingly about the macro environment as well. Um, so, you know, so one, you know, one thing that you touch on there is kind of this, this idea of correlation between, uh, you know, the NASDAQ and, and crypto. And maybe some of that is like common ownership, right? So that kind of Dan Moorhead quote, when he got into, uh, you know, uh, hedge funds back in the day, it was alts because they were actually uncorrelated, but now everybody owns the same stuff, right? So it's this, this element of common common ownership. Uh, and then, you know, the, the higher level thing is just the Fed in general. And I've heard you kind of say in the past, like one of the reasons you were excited to get out of Wall Street is it felt like you were just analyzing what the Fed was saying every six weeks. And it's not, that's not ultimately very exciting. But, you know, the big, the big thing that's changed over the course of the last year is inflation in general, right? And the Fed hasn't had to fight that in a very long time. So my question to you is just, you know, do you view the Fed as being in control of the current situation as it pertains to inflation? And does that matter, you know, when it when it translates into the crypto market? Sure. And first of all, you know, let's also remember that, you know, most digital asset participants are not coming from traditional finance, right? So they're learning some of this stuff. I remember six months ago when, you know, we had a really bad jobs report and all of a sudden people are like, oh, you know, you know, maybe there's another jobs report coming out. Like, you know, people didn't know that there was <laughs> weekly jobless claims every Thursday at 8.30 a.m. and that there was a monthly report, you know, every month, um, you know, but they learned it and they're like, okay, right now this is driving the market. So we need to pay attention to it, right? Same thing. Most, you know, people who are trading Bitcoin and other digital assets probably weren't too concerned about, you know, each of the FOMC meetings every six months or every six weeks for the last, you know, three years. But, you know, since the inflation print in November of last year, now all of a sudden everybody cares about it every day, right? You know, most likely, just like we talked about the correlations, you know, same thing with these drivers, they come and go, right? Right now, this is the only thing people care about, but it won't be the only thing people care about, you know, six months from now, 12 months from now. Um, with regard to the Fed being in control, I would say absolutely not, right? I mean, I think you can see that in, you know, the fact that we have a eight and a half percent year over year CPI print and we have a, you know, quarter percent Fed funds rate, right? That's, you know, by definition, that means they're not in control right now. Um, you know, that, that, that should be, <laughs> I think the last time we had CPI in the eight and eight and a half percent range was something like in the, uh, I want to say in the early eighties, uh, and the Fed funds rate was like 14%. So yes, clearly they're not in control right now. Um, now, the flip side of that is that they can't really be in control, right? Most people, including the Fed themselves, will tell you that they really can't do anything to fight inflation, right? They, you know, raising rates, whether it's 50 basis points at a time or 75 basis points or 25 basis points, it's not a whole lot they can do about rising oil prices um, or about uh, 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 rising food prices. Um, so it's a lot of it is symbolic. And there's a reason that if you look at the last three weeks right before the uh, the next FOMC meeting is May 4th, today is April 26th. Um, you know, they're in a, they're in a, a blackout period right now for the next, you know, eight days. They can't talk. But before that, every single day, there was two or three Fed speaker, Fed governors that were speaking, right? That's not normal. They don't go out there and talk every single day for three weeks. The reason they're doing that is because they know it's less about the rates and the rate hikes as it is about the narrative. If they go out there and tell everybody, we're in control, we're going to raise rates, we're not going to let this get out of control, then it keeps people from freaking out, right? Inflation is more of a mindset than anything else. If you, if you think that your paycheck 
um, is not going to be worth as much two weeks from now as it is today. Like if you're in a hyperinflationary environment, like, you know, in Venezuela or South Africa or Turkey, you know, in, in years past, you're literally spending your money the second you get it because you're worried that things are going to be too expensive, you know, a day later or two days later or a week later. Um, that's obviously not the way the prices aren't rising organically that fast. They start rising that fast because people are freaking out and spending much faster. So what the Fed's job is to do is to get is to make sure that doesn't happen, right? They're trying to tell everybody, hey, we got this under control. Hey, rate hikes will slow things down. Hey, we'll have a soft landing to get people to be like, yeah, you know, inflation's high, but it's not like I'm going to rush out there to buy milk the second I get paid because I'm worried that it's going to be 20 cents, you know, more expensive tomorrow. So a lot of what they can do is just talk markets down. And that's what they're doing. And that's why you see everything from bonds getting crushed to oil getting crushed to equities getting crushed to crypto getting crushed. It's all the same thing, right? It is like that is what that is the only thing they can do right now is to try to dampen the financial markets to basically lower people's purchasing power to make them not go out there and just start spending like crazy. The rate hikes themselves are symbolic at this point. And in fact, you could argue that it's already done, right? The 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 two year is already at 270. It's already priced in um, you know, everything that's already, everything they're planning to do is already priced in by the markets anyway. So I guess then, you know, knitting those two things together, right? Let's say the Fed has woken up and said, whoa, we are way behind inflation, right? If you go back to the last comparable period where we had this, this rate of inflation in the U.S., it was the 19, 1970s and 80s, and Fed funds was at 14% or whatever it was, 10 years, over 18%, I think. Um, so let's say we have to slow, we have to slow things down. We have to crush demand and essentially cause a recession, right? Um, so if, if, you know, if you're looking at, and it's, you know, in terms of sentiment, it's like this is like the most bearish I can ever remember it being, the most consensus I can ever remember it being for everything is going down, right? And you're starting to see that pain finally show up in in stock in the stock market. Um, we also just talked about there's a huge correlation right now, like record high in between the NASDAQ and crypto. So my question to you is, if the Fed is indeed going to kind of pull the fire alarm and want to slow everything down in more traditional financial markets, is that necessarily going to have to translate into crypto, at least over the next, like, let's say six to nine months? Well, let's let's take it a different direction, which is you could argue that digital assets are performing pretty admirably in the face of what's happening here, right? So, I so agree. let's let's you know let's look at some numbers for a second. This is updated through Sunday, just because I wrote about it just the other day. But you know, if you look at the returns, um, you know, over the um, the last year to date, let's just look at. Right. Bitcoin was down about 14% as of Sunday. The NASDAQ was down 18%. Uh, long bonds were down 20. Um, you know, emerging market equities were down 14. Uh, Euro equities were down 16. You know, it, that's a pretty admirable performance. And if you think about like, why do hedge funds exist in the first place? Right. Hedge funds convinced pension funds and endowments that, Hey, we can capture all or most of the upside in the market, but we'll protect you against that downside. And, you know, even though hedge funds have underperformed for basically the last 12 years because the market went straight up from 2009 to 2021, people still invested in hedge funds. Or, you know, why? Because they were convinced that, okay, well, when we need them, when the market turns, they'll outperform and we want that outperformance. Basically, what they're saying is we want something that has high up capture, meaning you're going to capture most of the upside and something that has low down capture, meaning you're not going to capture a lot of the downside. Well, well, digital assets just as as a, as a whole, as an asset class, basically just did exactly what every investor is looking for. The last two and a half years, during everything going up, digital assets outperformed everything under the sun on the way up. But on the way down, 
they're performing in line and in some cases even better than, you know, tech stocks and other ways. So what, what's going to happen here is, of course, right now, like you said, sentiment is really bad right now. Nobody wants to touch anything right now. There's high cash balances. There's high shorts. You know, every fear and greed index is at the lows. Right? It looks like no one's ever going to invest ever again. Right. You know, that's that's usually the best time to invest when nobody wants to. But, um, you know, it looks like, you know, the world is ending. Of course, it probably isn't, right? Not every you know 10% or 20% correction means the world is ending. But um, eventually, when something changes, where that sentiment changes and where people start to get uh, aggressive wanting to, to wanting to buy assets again, investors are going to look at that performance. They're going to say, hey, you know what I need to own? I need to own some digital assets because for the last five years, it just showed exactly the kind of characteristics I'm looking at. It has high up capture. And it has very low down capture. So to me, that's the most important thing right now is that, you know, when, when everybody pulls their money out, it doesn't matter if you're in a money market or you're in, you know, the most riskiest stock or, you know, digital asset in the world. When people pull their money out, nothing's going to do well. But when they put the money back in, you're going to start to see flows go in, in certain directions. And I think it's pretty clear right now that, you know, Russia and China is pretty uninvestable or at least not very high on anyone's list, right? Europe. Uh, because of how much they import and how much reliance they have on energy abroad is pretty not very high on anyone's list right now. Uh, bonds, not very high on anyone's list right now, given, you know, we're, we're, we're heading towards, uh, you know, continued rate hikes. That doesn't leave a whole lot. That leaves, you know, U.S. equities. That leaves U.S. real estate. That leaves digital assets. And I'm sure there's some things I'm missing here, but you get the idea, right? Fund flows generally drive performance more than anything else. And I think it's pretty clear that the, the the needle is moving in the right direction for digital assets in that regard. Jeff, you you mentioned so my, so Mike has asked a lot of like macro related questions about the Fed, and you mentioned like Russia and Ukraine, and then there's these macro indicators like the central banks hiking interest rates. I've heard you talk about censorship and just financial asset censorship in companies and countries seizing assets. How much of that narrative uh, do you think has kicked off this like uh, crypto outperforming relative to to other assets. Yeah, I mean it's always hard to tell in the moment, but but I think I think a year from now we're going to look back and it's going to be very obvious that February and March of 2022 were a massive turning point with regard to understanding and and interest in owning bearer assets like digital assets. Um, you know, starting off with what Canada did, you know, where they basically said, you know, if you're part of this trucking convoy, we're going to freeze your assets. Okay. That's weird, right? That's not the kind of thing you'd expect to happen in Canada. Um, to, you know, obviously Russia, you know, with uh, Putin just, you know, unilaterally deciding, hey, we're going to tank our economy in the ruble just to, you know, attack Ukraine. To the US and, 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 and Europe basically putting sanctions on anybody who is in Russia. Um, to even what the LME did, right? The London Metal Exchange basically just saying, you know what, we're going to just cancel these trades. And, you know, if you had positive PL because of nickels rise, because you were, uh, 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 you know, a, a long, we're just going to cancel it. It's not yours anymore. And you start to put those things together and you say, well, wait a minute, I thought my money was my money. And now I'm finding out that my money isn't actually my money. My money is the bank or the brokerage account or the government's money. And it's really their liability to me. And whether or not they're actually going to pay me back, I have no idea. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that most people in the digital asset world have been talking about for eight years, but it doesn't resonate with most people when it doesn't affect them, right? Now that it's starting to affect people that are more like them, right? Your Russian oligarchs, your Canadian citizens, your, you know, uh, people in Europe, all of a sudden you start to say, wait a minute, this could happen to me too. And I don't think I'm okay with that. So, you know, you just, you start to think about the hypocrisy of what's going on and the fact that you don't actually own your assets. And it makes you realize 
maybe I do need some protection there. Maybe I do need to own some stable coins or some Bitcoin or some Ethereum or something else. And I think that is starting to resonate all over the world. And a year from now, we're going to point back to that and say, yeah, that was obvious. Do you view, um, you know, one you know period of time in history that people point to as being really influential is the closing of the gold window, right? And that's when we kind of departed with all this notion that we're on some sort of gold standard and no, it's all just fiat-backed, right, in general. Uh, you know, you kind of heard some proclamations recently that the FX seizure, specifically of the Russian central bank assets, right, that this was the closing of the FX reserves window, right? When, if you think about the ability that there's a great thread from Punk 6529 on basically the ability to transact underpins the rest of your freedoms, right? The ability to free speech and right to assembly and freedom of the press doesn't really mean shit if you have no money, right? And to transact and actually accomplish any of that stuff. So, you know, do you view this as, you know, people kind of waking up and saying, wow, this is not actually my stuff and we actually need something else that's more solid to underpin the global reserve currency? Maybe it's Bitcoin, maybe it's some crypto thing, maybe it's commodities, whatever it is. But do you view this as being like the starting gun essentially for countries to think about that? Yeah, I mean, certainly maybe. I mean, that's, that's probably a bigger question than, than, than what I have any real knowledge to answer. But, but I think, I think yes. <laughs> I, I, but I also would we say demand that, answers, Jeff. <laughs> well, I, I think, yeah, exactly. I, I think, I think the better way to think about it is for the most part, people just trust what works, right? If it works, people trust it, right? You know, the US dollar for the most part works. So people just trust it, right? If you actually you know, peel the onion and look what's behind the US dollar, there's not a whole, whole hell of a lot, right? We all know there's nothing there other than the, you know, the will of, of the US government and the military. Um, you know, the same thing would be true of an algorithmic stablecoin, right? You know, it's a joke to most people until after years it works. And finally they're like, yeah, I don't really care what's behind it. You know, it works, right? I think the same thing is, I mean, that's mostly what, you know, FX and currency is, right? It's a trust-based system. Um, I'm not really sure if the answer is making sure there's always a hard asset behind it so much as it is that, you know, you can see in this like last decade and, and, and even more so in the last few months that a lot of that trust is eroding. Um, and when trust erodes, people want a new system. And, you know, if you back it by something, it just leads to the next question. Well, then people might stop trusting the thing that it's backed by. I'm not sure just a backing itself is the answer, but I do think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's clear that people are losing faith with the idea of just blindly trusting your governments, your corporations, your banks and brokerages. I think one interesting way to maybe frame that too is just the basic idea of like property rights in general. Like when you talk about bearer assets, right? That's actual property rights and people own that. Um, and there have been these studies done, uh, you know, on just what makes an economy or, or uh, successful in general. And people tend to point to these very political things like, oh, it's a democracy or it's not a democracy. But in reality, there's a much higher correlation between strong property rights and courts that uphold those property rights um, as opposed to like a causal indicator of what makes an economy successful. You could trace that to like what we're kind of talking about, this very macro sense, like currency and the dollar and all that kind of stuff. But then there's maybe like the more Web3 ethos, like Web2 versus Web3, where you own the digital assets that you're creating. And I, I'd actually, this is maybe like a departure from what we're talking about, but I saw you wrote a post uh, that Twitter should issue a token. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'd be curious to get your whole standpoint on like, the like the Elon Twitter uh, acquisition and like and like what you know what you're writing about in that post in general because I think that kind of plays into this. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, you know, I'll back up for a second. I think I think ownership is all that matters, right? And and you can point to a lot of what has happened in the last 20, 30 years, right? And in fact, I think there's a great uh, Twitter handle that's like, you know, what happened in 1971? Like basically since 1971, everything has just gone downhill. And that's basically when we removed from the gold standard and all of a sudden wealth inequality, you know, became massive. And, you know, basically you had to own a house or own equities to, to keep pace with inflation and everything like that. 
Um, but ultimately it comes down to ownership, right? Whether you own stocks or you own gold or you own a house or you own something. Well, what I think is so powerful about digital assets, and I've said this, you know, over and over again, is I think, um, you know, I, I would say I think digital assets are the greatest capital formation and customer bootstrapping and um, uh, wealth equality function we've ever seen. It, you know, it, it is the first thing that has ever basically fully aligned all of the participants of a company or an organization. And I've used this analogy, you know, many times. So apologies for anyone who's heard it before and it's repetitive, but like, you know, take McDonald's for an example. Um, it's, there's no reason that if you're a McDonald's customer that you have to be a shareholder or vice versa. And in fact, that's probably, if you look at like a Venn diagram, that's probably one of the least, you know, overlapping circles of a Venn diagram of any company you'll ever see, right? Between, between a mismatch of their customers versus their shareholders. Um, that's crazy, right? That means that you as a frequent customer of McDonald's or you as a worker at McDonald's, you are doing all of these things to make McDonald's what it is and sharing in none of the ownership or the property rights or the you know, financial benefit of that success. Um, and, you know, you can uh, look at tons of other companies that are the same thing, right? From Airbnb to, to DoorDash, um, even Amazon, right? I mean, how many Amazon Prime members and delivery people are not benefiting from Amazon shares? What we're doing with digital assets is we're largely, you know, giving that ownership to the people who make these projects and companies work. You know, let's look at Facebook, right? If you, Facebook famously 15 years ago or 13 years ago said, we figured out growth hacking faster than everyone else, right? We basically figured out that if our, uh, if our users like 10 posts or follow 10 friends within the first week, they're basically going to be a customer for life. So Facebook did everything they could. Uh, with their UI and their UX to basically force or trick their users into doing those actions, right? Because then they would become a customer for life. But none of those users are, or did, got anything for it, right? They weren't being paid for it. They weren't receiving any benefits for doing those things. It was just, you know, basically one giant UI UX trick. That's ridiculous, right? You know, the whole idea of yield farming and, and digital assets or this idea of, of earning, um, you know, for being a participant is that basically you get the shares. It'd be the equivalent of, hey, if you do those actions Facebook wants you to do, they're going to give you some Facebook shares for doing it. Well, that's basically what we're doing in the digital asset world, right? If you're an early depositor to a DeFi application, or if you're an early trader, or you're an early user of LooksRare with NFTs, or you're, you know, an early gamer, you're going to be paid for those actions, right? They are rewarding you for doing the actions that they want you to do. And that is how you solve for wealth inequality is you, you, you basically reward people for, for actions. So let's look at Twitter, right? Twitter is not, you know, first of all, the Twitter stock price obviously hadn't gone anywhere. And, you know, since the IPO, which is why people had been so angry and why Musk came in, but you know, the people who made Twitter go from, you know, a few, you know, active users in San Francisco to 300 million, you know, global daily active users, they're getting nothing out of Twitter's success, even though they're the ones who make it possible. So why wouldn't you introduce a token there where it's like, hey, what are the actions we want people on Twitter to do? Well, we want you to engage in content. Great. We'll pay you for it. Hey, we want you to write content. Cool. We'll pay you for it. Um, you know, hey, we want to, uh, uh, you know, have discussions on, on Twitter spaces or whatever. You know, you get the idea. Like, it wouldn't be hard for executives uh, in Twitter to say, what are the things we want people to do? And let's go reward them with it. Um, and then we can make that token uh, not only you know quasi equity in the form of, of of getting some of the kickbacks from the revenue and profits of the company, but then you can also make it a utility. Hey, you can redeem your Twitter tokens to post, or you can redeem them to uh, you know amplify uh, a post or boost it. I mean, there's all these different things you can do, and I haven't thought through all of it, but you get the idea, right? Like this is the perfect company for 
ownership or property rights or benefits to be shifted from shareholders to the people who make it work on a daily basis. And I think they would be absolutely crazy not to implement that. Jeff, what's the problem that you're trying to solve for here? Because if I'm putting it on a almost like a Web2 skeptical hat, I'm saying, well, Facebook did all right without a token, right? They've got a $500 billion market cap and... Uh, you know, two two billion users, right? If I'm Uber, and I, you know, the Uber's, I think the one that gets used a lot is like we could have given uh, tokens to the drivers by Bootstrap and like help Bootstrap the growth there. But if I'm an Uber executive or an Uber VC, I'm saying, well, we, we did pretty damn well, right? We've got a public company, sixty billion dollar market cap, and the biggest ride sharing company in the world right now. Um, we, we did we did all that without a token. So what is the problem that you're trying to solve there? Well, that's survivorship bias, right? You're, you're looking at the ones that succeeded. Well, how about all the executives that are sitting around wondering how come they didn't become the next Uber or the next Starbucks or the next, you know, uh, uh, Facebook, right? I mean, there's, there's thousands or tens of thousands of examples of, of things that failed that probably had similar models that could have worked. Um, and, you know, you can look around on a daily basis. I mean, how many, how many things that you do in your daily life do you actually have an equity ownership in? Um, like, you know, here's an example, right? I'm, I'm a, maybe a different demographic than some of your listeners and you guys, but you know, on a, on a, you know, I take my kids to the park in the morning and then maybe we go get a haircut and then maybe we go eat at a local, you know, restaurant and then maybe we go to a climbing gym or something like, I don't own any, I have no equity ownership in any of these small private businesses that we transact in on a daily basis. What if, what if I did? What if I had a token and, you know, all of a sudden I not only am using these even more, but now I'm evangelizing and trying to get all my friends and family to go use these uh, services as well. Right. Most of the things you do on a daily basis, you have no real incentive or interest in the success of that business. You're just using it. But what if you had some sort of economic success or some sort of, uh, you know, loyalty to these businesses and services you're using? You could argue that a lot of these would succeed even faster. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't point to the super successful mega tech companies and say, therefore, we don't need to align incentives because these worked. I would point to all the failures in small businesses that haven't maybe lived up to their potential, possibly because they haven't aligned their their customers with their with their profiteers. Maybe this one we can kind of get into the weeds a little bit more on crypto governance because you guys are pretty active um, on some of these, uh, like from a governance standpoint, a lot of the protocols that you invest in. Uh, maybe like the way that I kind of see what we're talking about here, which is giving ownership in the in the protocol to new users, is um, is it's a it's a CAC versus LTV problem, right? You know, if you think of it like you are, there's a cost, right? It's like it's almost like equity financing where you're giving equity away to. Uh, to these new users of your platform, and you're hoping that the growth that you get from those new users um, more than offsets the cost of whatever equity that you're giving away. I think one of the like the early iterations of that was yield farming, right? And it was usually around these like decentralized finance, like, like kind of farming type applications, right? Where they wanted liquidity to move on. And I think you know you're starting to see like this almost passed on Compound, right? That they kind of kicked off DeFi summer with exactly what we're talking about, and they they actually talked and almost passed stopping giving away those farming incentives because I think the problem with it is is that you know to your point it's it's a, it's a very expensive way to acquire customers and you don't actually maybe acquire the best ones right so from your perspectives or Arca's perspective like how are how are protocols kind of what what do you think the best way to actually give that those tokens or equity away to new users right is it just to kind of dump it on them is it to maybe have like lockup periods like how are you seeing that maybe V1 of yield farming kind of evolve, right, in this next iteration of governance? Yeah, I mean, I mean well, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of it is different 
incentives for different types of companies and businesses, right? I'm not sure there's a one-stop shop answer to how to do it, but you're seeing that experimentation, right? I mean, the early days from Compound and, and um, you know, even like Ave and some of the other lending borrow platforms were like, it's clear that they just inflated way too much, right? Way too fast. They just gave it away. They got mercenaries to come in. Um, and then, you know, those guys left and now they're left with a, you know, uh, I, I suppose a worse off capital structure than maybe they would have otherwise. But at the same time, those protocols are still functioning pretty well, yeah. right? It, it worked, right? Those guys are, you know, it's not like this is a high barrier to entry space and it's not like there isn't comp competition. But if you look at TVL, like Compound and Maker and, uh, you know, Ave are still, you know, leading by a mile in terms of the lending borrowing platform. So, you know, you could argue that maybe they gave away too much and maybe they didn't have the stickiest customers out of it or maybe they didn't get the best results, but they certainly got good results. Um, you know, even notwithstanding the price of their tokens, the business itself is, you know, doing exactly what you'd hope it to do, right? I mean, if you have, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but what is it? You know, you're in the, you're in the multiple uh, tens of billions now in, uh, yeah, I mean, you got 14 billion at TVL at Maker, 11 billion at Ave. You know, Curve's got 10 billion. I mean, you know, that's those are real numbers. Compound six billion. Those are real numbers for startups, right? I mean, I think I read something a while ago that if you took all of the DeFi applications and put them together, collectively, DeFi would be the 19th largest bank in the United States, which is pretty powerful considering DeFi is basically two years old in all intents, okay. you know, intents and purposes. So. You, it has definitely worked. It made us not be perfect. So what's, you know, other iterations that people have tried? Well, they tried the, the, the curve or the VE, you know, uh, tokenomics, right? Where if you just lock up your tokens for longer, then you get more benefits. And that's okay, right? I mean, that's, that's a way of saying, okay, you have to at least be a long-term uh, holder to get the benefits, but it doesn't really incentivize the actions that you want. I think the right design is to take each business, just like we talked about with Facebook and say, what is it that we want you to do what is a perfect customer look like? And let us, let's incentivize you for doing that. I mean, looks rare is probably the best example right now, right? Looks rare is just a copycat of OpenSea. OpenSea is a corporation that is owned by venture equity that has all kinds of regulatory pressure uh, that's preventing them from doing a token or doing anything to reward their customers, right? You know, there's a $13 billion equity valuation of which what six guys benefited from that. Um, you know, there's no, none of the customers or people on OpenSea are benefiting at all from OpenSea's success. So here comes LooksRare. And what do they do? They say, hey, what are the actions we want people to do? We want you to list NFTs. Okay, cool. We'll pay you for it. Hey, we want you to buy NFTs. Okay, we'll pay you for it. Oh, we want you to trade. Okay, we'll pay you for it. Right? You know, those incentives are already starting to wear off and LooksRare is continuing to rise in terms of market dominance of uh, NFTs. Right? These actions matter. Now, there's not a perfect formula yet. I think these have to be tweaked constantly. And I think sometimes you start something, you realize it doesn't work, and that's where governance comes in. And you say, hey, this isn't working. Let's make a change or let's try this. Um, and I think the ability to be fluid and, and flexible really matters. Um, but I don't think there's going to be just an answer to what is the perfect dynamic. I think holistically, the, the, the things that I really believe in is that one, you have to align all your stakeholders, your founders, your developers, your passive investors, your customers, your liquidity providers, you have to align them. Um, and two is you have to figure out what it is you're actually trying to achieve in your business. And let's figure out a way to get people to do that. How are you seeing governance evolve in general? I, again, I keep asking these like one size fits all questions, but like if you had to take a snapshot of like how governance worked at some of these large protocols, like like a like ones that I know you've been involved, like a sushi or something like that, like let's say twelve months ago versus what it looks like today. How do you see that structure kind of evolving? I mean, you, know, you first you have to kind of start with you know uh, most DAOs are not you know decentralized autonomous organizations, right? Right. Very few are decentralized. 
almost none of them are autonomous. Um, they're really just org- they're really just organizations, right? So let's let's just start there and, and you know call spade a spade, right? Most yeah. of them are just organizations that have a, you know a, a, a fun way of describing themselves. But to get to decentralized or autonomous, you know, there is a path to getting there, right? But very few things can start fully decentralized and autonomous, right? You know, Bitcoin and even to some extent Ethereum are probably the anomalies, not the norm, right? Most projects need to start with a real leader. They need to start with some direction. And then as you start to figure out exactly what you're solving for and your product market fit and what works and what doesn't and what kind of employees you need and what kind of customers you're attracting, then you can start to figure out, okay, how do we automate some of this? How do we decentralize some of the ownership, right? And if you go back to what uh, uh, Hester Peirce in the the SEC put out, I think two years ago with her safe harbor, she pretty much nailed it, right? She put out a three-year safe harbor idea, which said, go ahead and start your company however you want. We'll give you three years, but you need to you know, hit these check boxes along the way that proves that you're heading towards decentralized and autonomous in order to basically be, you know, uh, safe from, you know, retribution. Um, that's probably where you have to head. So in terms of governance today, a lot of what has worked from a governance standpoint is less uh, opinions, not more, right? In the early days of a company, you kind of need a king or a leader or a monarchy. You know, you, you can't just have a thousand voices and be like, yep, we're going to get it right on, on day 30 because 400 people all have different opinions and we're going to figure out how to put that together. It's like, you know what? Sometimes you just need one person to make a decision and it might work and it might not, but at least you can actually make a decision. And if it doesn't work, then you can fix it. So I've always thought the right way for governance is governance is a checks and balances system. It's not designed to run the company. You know, just because you're a big token holder and have a large vote doesn't mean you are now the CEO. It just means that you're the checks and balances system. You have the keys to overturn bad decisions. You have the keys to, you know, help offboard or onboard if you need help. You have the ability to basically prevent bad actors. Um, you know, all this talk about the, from the SEC or really not the SEC, it's really just Gensler, but all this talk from Gensler is, you know, about, you know, we need a cop on the beat. We need someone to protect you. The reality is like most of the time crowds are better at protecting than, you know, individual enforcement. And if you have the, the crowd saying, Hey, you guys go ahead, you two or three or five or 10 people, go ahead, run your business however you want, but we're going to be watching you. And if you make a mistake, we're going to call you out on it. And you know, we want you to do it in the public domain. We want public dashboards. We want public transparency. We are going to be your public board of directors, but we're not having a board of director meeting every day. We're going to have it when there's a reason to have it, right? When somebody does something wrong or when a big decision needs to be made. And, and that's probably how it works best. And that's how we've seen it works best is get the right people in place, run it like a business. But when big decisions need to be made or when changes need to be made, that's when the governance really comes into play. All right, everyone, quick break from the show to share a big update from our friends at Paraswap, the best platform to stake, swap, trade, farm, and more. Paraswap just launched gas refunds. Based on how much you stake, you can now get up to 100% of your gas refunded on all of your swaps on Paraswap. This is huge. For anyone who has spent a lot of time in DeFi, or maybe it's just starting out, you know how egregiously expensive the gas transactions can get. The gas fees are ridiculous at some points in time, and now you can get those entirely refunded on Paraswap. To participate, all you need to do is stake a minimum of 500 PSP. Big shout out to the Paraswap DAO for making these refunds possible. 
really, it's just, it's tough to be Paraswap right now. They give you the best prices. Uh, they save you money. You've got this gas refund if you stake PSP. They've got a smooth and really user-friendly interface, fast swapping. It's really everything that you'd want from a DeFi platform. If you don't use them already, check out Paraswap today at paraswap.io. Now let's get back to the show. Jeff, if you look at two, two let's, let's, let's compare two companies. So you've got Coinbase and Uniswap, right? Um, they both enable users to swap and trade tokens. Uniswap has 3% of the employees of Coinbase, yet they do about 75% of the trading volume. And the reason that this has happened, I think you would argue, is because the incentives are completely aligned. They make their users owners via, via governance tokens and LP tokens. Is there any way for these almost, I think in crypto, we call them CeFi companies, right? The, the BlockFi's and the Coinbase's of the world. Is there any way for them to compete with, and is there any way for OpenSea to compete with a LuxRare or a Coinbase to compete with a Uniswap? Like, what is your vision of how these two types of companies, DeFi and CeFi, coexist in the next couple of years? Or maybe you would argue DeFi just kind of runs over these CeFi companies. Yeah, I mean, I think short term, the answer is move out of the US, right? I mean, FTX and Binance both have a token, right? You know, they, the reason I love the exchange business as, as an analogy is because you have three exactly the same companies all doing it completely differently, right? You have something like Coinbase, which just has debt and equity and no token. You have something like Uniswap and SushiSwap that has no equity and just a token. And then you have like Binance and FTX that have both or Bitfinex, right? And, and they're all doing the exact same thing. And they're having different levels of success based on partly their capital structure. You know, you could certainly argue that Binance and FTX are having the most success because of the fact that they have the equity base to help them grow when they need it. But they also have the token base who has this loyalty and membership benefit part in addition to financial upside. That matters, right? That is probably the best alignment we've seen. Um, so I think the short term answer is you have to get out of the United States. The United States is not allowing you to do it, right? Um, or at least, you know, nobody's been willing to fight them enough to challenge it, right? You know, you would love to see an open sea say, you know what, I hear you, but I'm going to go issue a token anyway, and you can fight me in court to see if it's legal or not. But they're not there yet. You know, you'd love to see Coinbase do it. Like, I think it's crazy that Coinbase even, you know, did a public stock listing instead of doing a tokenized stock offering. Like, you know, you're the behemoth in the business. Like, Go out there and try something that's hard, even if it doesn't have the best financial results, and go see if you can make changes that are beneficial to you long term. It's not like issuing equity did much for them. The stock's down 60% since they went public. So, you know, they, you have to start, you need the bigger companies that are well resourced and have the legal teams to go out there and, and, and push the envelope. So I think that's step one is, is, is the US is challenging, but somebody needs to just push the envelope and try to win a court battle. Um, two, uh, though, is I think, um, you know, ultimately, I do think that DeFi and CeFi kind of merge, um, where I think eventually CeFi, you know, these the centralized companies really just become pass-through entities to a DeFi backend. Um, the analogy, and, and I'm always big on analogies because I, uh, you know, I speak to a lot of investors who are new to digital assets. So I, try to, I try to find ways to dumb it down, and I, I test things on my 73-year-old parents to see if they understand it, and I know others will. But the analogy I always, I always use is like, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you know, if you flew at an airport, you basically had your paper ticket. They issued you the paper ticket in the mail. You showed up, you, you know, you handed your paper ticket over, you got on the plane. And somewhere around 15, 18, 20 years ago, they started doing the electronic ticketing and the kiosks and you had to swipe your credit card to get your, your, your ticket. 
as silly as this sounds now, people were terrified of doing that. You know, they're about to go up in a plane, you know, 30,000 miles, 30,000 feet in the air going 500 miles an hour. And they're totally fine with that. But they were terrified about swiping their credit card in a machine. Um, so what they would do is they'd go up to the ticket counter and be like, hey, you know, I need to go, you know, get my ticket. And the person behind the ticket counter would say, OK. And they would walk you over to the kiosk and show you how to use it. It's basically what I think the CFI DeFi relationship will be. It's like, you'll go to Coinbase because it's comfortable. You'll go to OpenSea because it's comfortable, right? That's your ticket agent. That's your, you know, live person on the phone who can help you. Um, but all they're going to do is route your trade through a DeFi backend, right? You're going to have the AMMs providing the liquidity, um, you know, and, and, you know, they're going to, they're going to route trades and, and source the liquidity just like anybody who uses DeFi directly. Um, so ultimately it doesn't mean that they don't have a place. Um, it just means that, you know, you're not going to Coinbase because they have the best market makers. You're going to Coinbase because they have a brand and a service. Um, and ultimately, you're all basically going to be transacting out of the same liquidity pool. So, Jeff, maybe let's let's turn the, the, the focus here towards like the future. Like you guys see a whole bunch of different opportunities as a fund, right? You know, I know you've been active in, uh, you know, like a whole bunch of different governance proposals, that kind of thing. What are you excited about, let's say, over the course of the next like six to 12 months? Any areas where you're like, just super keyed into excited about you know um from like a theme or sector standpoint like a theme or sector standpoint yeah yeah i mean you know we we i, I would definitely say it's a little bit of um a lull right now in the sense that like you know a year ago two years ago we were incredibly excited about nfts and gaming we were incredibly excited about DeFi. um uh right now it's a little boring in the sense like honestly the biggest the thing i'm most excited about is stable coins I mean, I think stable coins going from zero to 200 billion in the last year and a half, probably heading to a trillion plus in the next year. Um, I think that's a huge deal. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, pure play ways to play that, right? We're from Luna to Frax, um, you know, for those who have access, maybe uh, circle equity. Um, but there, you know, I think that is a huge growth engine um, for all digital assets. Um, I think bridges. Um, is still something that is really important. Um, you know, whether you are, um, you know, there's obviously a lot, I don't want to get into the, the technology here, but in terms of the different types of bridges that exist, we'll see which technology wins out. But this idea of a cross chain world where you don't even really care, um, what chain you start on or end up on, all you care about is can my assets get there? Um, I think that's a huge, um, uh, problem that will be solved here in the next year. You know, some, some form of interoperability, um, you know, whether that's Adam's IBC ecosystem, which we're really bullish on, um, or, or, you know, something like a, a multi-chain or a synapse, but there's a lot of different ways to tackle that problem. Um, and then, you know, I'm also really, um, a big believer in, kind of non-trading consumer apps that start to work, right? I mean, we've seen little iterations of that, you know, things like Stepin, right? For those who are unfamiliar, you know, the idea of getting paid for, for you know, basically moving and exercising um, to some, you know, even like B2B things like a, like a Unibright that's, that's working on logistics, um, you know, to certain gaming apps or, or, you know, integrations with shopping. Um, you know, I think, for example, even though the metaverse is a really loose term um, and probably years away from having any real traction, like, you know, you could think of Amazon really as a giant metaverse, right? Right now you go to Amazon and you click around and you shop in different stores. Um, well, you know, one day that might be a metaverse experience, right? Where you have your avatar and you're, you know, going into these different storefronts within Amazon. Um, so I think, you know, this idea of, 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 you know, kind of real world consumer behavior things rather than just, you know, things that are based on trading and, and, and finance, um, are, are really exciting. And then, you know, lastly, I'll just, this is one we've liked for a while, but, 
um, you know, really big on this interaction between fans and their favorite sports teams, celebrities, um, you know, uh, athletes, et cetera. Um, you know, we, we've talked about Chili's many times, you know, with their idea of fan tokens, right? Connecting fans directly to their, their favorite sports teams. But I think it goes beyond that. I think, I think you're going to have these personal connections between musicians, athletes, influencers, you know, celebrities where they directly own their communities. Um, and, uh, the communities can benefit both financially as well as via utility for being a part of that community. Um, so I think that's sort of the biggest growth engine. And I'll, I'll leave with one last that's probably further out. But um, what really excites me mostly is I think every company and entity in the world is going to have a token one day, right? We, you know, we already talked about Twitter token. Like it, it is so inevitable to me that Disney will have a token one day and the Disney token market cap will be greater than the Disney equity, right? Because that token will give you rights to Disney Plus and, you know, access to rides at the park and, you know, dibs on IP and things like that. You know, I think every municipality will have a token, right? You know, you want to fund a certain project in the city you live in. Great. You know, you can do that through a token and get better access to the park or maybe faster lines at the airport or different rates and taxis. Or maybe you live in, you know, San Antonio, but you're bullish on, you know, uh, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. You know, you can invest in that token if you want, even if you don't live there, rather than, you know, instead of the old way of having to go there and buy a house to have any exposure to it. Now you can, you know, do it through a token. I think every university is going to have a token. You know, you're going to buy UCLA token for your kid when he's born. And if he goes to UCLA 18 years later, you can use it as tuition. And if not, you can trade it for, you know, a Notre Dame coin or, you know, a Harvard coin. Um, you know, I just think it's so obvious that every entity in the world is going to have a token um, that, you know, that is going to be so much bigger than what exists today. Jeff, one thing that stands out that you didn't mention, you mentioned gaming in the metaverse and, and the every, everything having a token. One thing that it's clear that you didn't mention is, is, is DeFi. And to me, when I think about your investing style, you are one of the unique folks where you didn't come from like an engineering or software background and start investing. You came from this finance background. Because of that, I feel like one of the ways you look at the market is uh, you say, okay, some of these things actually have almost traditional spit-off cash flows and they've got margins and, and you can analyze these things in, in almost more traditional capital markets ways. For DeFi, TVL has really stagnated since like November or December of 2021. What, what, what's your take on DeFi over the next six to 12 months? Still stagnant, got over its skis in, 20, in DeFi summer and, and it's going to continue just kind of stagnating or, or you think we're primed for a kind of a breakout in DeFi again? Well, I think it depends on if you're talking about the token prices or just the usage and the, and the um, you know, activity level. So I think you know, I didn't mention DeFi just because, you know, as, as, as silly as it sounds, you know, DeFi is kind of old news compared to what's coming in the future, right? It's DeFi almost a utility. A, it's becoming, yeah. a, becoming a utility of the industry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, DeFi is a mature two years old now, right? We don't have to, it's not <laughs> exciting anymore. Um, no, but I mean, you know, I'll, I'll go back quickly to, you know, I mentioned uh, at the top of the hour, we talked about, you know, my experience with Citibank freezing my assets and me having a hole to plug at Coinbase. Do you know how I actually plugged that hole? I took some Ethereum. I deposited on Aave. I took out a USDC loan and I took that USDC and I uh, sent it over to Coinbase to plug the hole until I had access to my bank again. Um, you know, and I, and I insured my risk at Aave with Nexus Mutual. Um, you know, to me, that took 15 minutes. That was an obvious solution to a problem. I'm guessing most people in the world don't think of that as an obvious solution to a problem yet, but it, but it, it was, right? My bank literally froze my assets for 14 days, didn't tell me. I had no customer service, no idea what was going on. Uh, and in 15 minutes, I solved the problem through DeFi. Uh, I think, you know, DeFi just works, right? It may be kind of boring right now because TVL has stagnated. Um, it may be kind of, you know, frustrating because token prices have been down for 12 months. 
but it works, right? It really works. And I think more people, instead of just writing about it and talking about how nothing works, and, you know, like Joe Weisendahl Bloomberg, for example, right? I was picking on him the other day because he was just like, you know, he wrote an article yesterday or two days ago saying like, you know, all crypto is, 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 is trading for speculation. The reality is they haven't solved for anything. And I'm like, that's clearly somebody who hasn't tried to do anything, right? People who have played, you know, gaming, uh, blockchain-based games know that it works. People who have used DeFi applications know that it works. People who have sent money across boundaries with, you know, stable coins know that it works. Um, it's just that not enough people have actually tried it yet, right? It's still intimidating. It's still scary, right? Go, you know, again, you, I joked, but 20 years ago, people thought it was scary to put your credit card in a machine. They really did. They were like, I'm not doing this. And then one day there was that Malcolm Gladwell tipping point where it was like, well, you kind of can't function in society unless you put your credit card in things. And one day it was just like, okay, I don't agree with it. It's scary, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, that's sort of where we'll head with DeFi. It's just like one day, you know, you're going to have more and more of these anecdotal stories like mine, where you use DeFi to get a loan or to, you know, send assets and you'd be like, yeah, it just flat out works. And it works a lot better than the, than the system that we have in the banking and brokerage world. So I don't know when that tipping point happens. I don't know when, you know, it just becomes normal for people to do that. But I think it's, I think we will get there. Um, but in terms of investing, yeah, I mean, DeFi is one of the easiest things to invest in because those cash flows and revenues are real. I mean, we can model, we can, you know, we, we only invest at ARCA in companies and projects that we can see a real path to token accrual, right? We're not, you know, we're not making these, these early stage bets of, oh, this is the future network of the world and we'll figure out the token later. We invest in things that say, yeah, we can see a path right now or in the near future to how that token is going to accrue economic value. And that's usually through a combination of revenue and cash flows and some form of utility feature. Um, you know, we'll use Binance as a good example, right? Binance from a cash flow standpoint is easy. They make money when you trade on their platform and, you know, some portion of that money gets used to buy back BNB tokens. But they also have all these different utility ways to use the BNB token. You can use it to get discounted trading fees. You can use it to get collat as collateral to trade, you know, futures and options. You can use it to, you know, get in the lottery for new tokens that get issued on Binance. They've solved for that hybrid, you know, function of here's the cash flow financial upside on one side and here's the supply, here's the demand, you know, function for the utility or member benefit on the other side. You know, DeFi, a lot of them do the same thing. Um, so, you know, we certainly look for those tokens that accrue that real value through cash flows, but also have found ways to make the token useful within, within the network. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean just because things are valuable, it doesn't mean they go up though, right? And I think that's where the misnomer is in, in, in crypto investing is everyone thinks that if you find something that's cheap, it has to go up 100% tomorrow or you're wrong, right? Sometimes it takes some time. Sometimes you have to own it and be like, yeah, you know what? I bought it and it was really cheap at two times sales and four times earnings with a 15% dividend yield. And guess what? Six months from now, it just got cheaper. Now it's trading at one time sales and two times earnings and a 20% dividend yield. It doesn't mean you were wrong per se. It means it got cheaper. You should be, yeah. you know, your risk model should be telling you to buy more. Um, so that's how we think of it there is, is, you know, we, we, we certainly have, uh, heavy allocations to DeFi and we've been adding on the way down. Um, and, you know, but it's about finding the right businesses, finding the right projects, finding the right tokens that accrue that value. One thing that, um, I don't think we've solved in crypto yet, uh, that actually some of the banks really have done a good job at is keeping your user, um, and just making a really, uh, even though the product sometimes sucks, you end up sticking with your your fintech app or your bank for 20 years, right? I bet, so you mentioned you use Coinbase. I bet you use Coinbase because Coinbase was probably the first place that you ever bought your first Bitcoin. I don't know when it was, but I know that's the same for me. And, you know, I've, I've been using the same bank account for 20 years, even though I hate the experience. Uh, in DeFi, 
we haven't solved that, right? It's really easy for a user to just flip out of one protocol into another. And we've tried to solve it first with yield farming, then yield farming, we realized people dump the token. So then we introduced these like VE mechanics to try to like lock up users and to keep them for longer. What is the future of like building moats and capturing value and just like keeping a sticky user look like in DeFi? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't have a marketing or or you know branding background in any way, shape, or form, but I, I think you've hit it on the head, right? Is that a lot of times, you know, especially in this space, people care so much about the technology, and most of the time it has nothing to do with the technology. It has to do with the business development and the ability to, um, you know, create that sticky customer experience. Um, I, I don't know if I have great answers for what you have to do, but I can give you examples of of. Um, you know, like I mentioned Nexus Mutual, I'll pick on them for a second. Um, I really like the Nexus Mutual team. You know, there's only seven or eight people working there compared to, you know, 500 at like a, you know, an insure tech company like Root or Lemonade. It clearly, uh, economically, it works. You know, you can go out there and you can buy your insurance, you can protect your principal, and, and it makes all the sense in the world. Um, but, you know, from an insurance standpoint, in terms of an easy product, you know, most people aren't going out there seeking insurance, right? The insurance just comes with what you purchase, right? If I buy a car, I'm basically being forced to buy the insurance. If I go rent a car, I'm being forced to buy the insurance. Um, I'm not like renting the car and then 45 minutes later trying to drive to an insurance agency to get insurance on, on the rental car I just, I just got, right? That's crazy. That would be a terrible experience. You know, Nexus Mutual is caught in that right now as well. It's like I go on Aave or I go on Compound or I go, you know, somewhere where I, you know, put assets to work and then I have to separately go find Nexus Mutual and say, hey, can I buy insurance on that? Right. That's a, that, that, that has nothing to do with whether or not the technology is great or not. Um, for something like Nexus Mutual it has to do with like, they have not solved that customer stickiness thing. They have not solved the business development or the partnerships they need with DeFi applications to get people to in one click buy the insurance, right? It should be the second I connect my MetaMask wallet to a DeFi application, there should be some sort of a pop up that says, do you want to insure this transaction? Right. They haven't solved that. That has nothing to do with anything other than again, marketing PR customer relations, things like that. Um, so I think that is a real issue um, in the industry, not necessarily specific to DeFi, is that most of these teams are just tech teams, right? They haven't invested in the business development, in the marketing, in the customer, you know, stickiness. Um, they're just building cool tech and putting up a, you know, a, a 1990s style user interface and hoping that people try. I mean, look at Curve, right? I mean, Curve looks like a, an Atari game. Um, but that's, but that's awesome. That's great. I feel like that is great branding. Don't you think? Like, yeah, I mean, very, very well, maybe. But my point is, like, that's clearly not a focus of, the, you know, there, there's no focus there. There's no, like, team at Curve who's like, you know, what we're going to focus right now is on customer retention and building and marketing and UI, yeah. right? Like, for sure. So I think that is probably is something that definitely needs to be solved for. I don't have a, a lot of good answers to how you solve it. Um, but I think that is definitely where money will be spent uh, in the future is, is figuring out that loyalty. And, and you know, it, it's, you're right. I mean, a lot of the companies and businesses that you use are not necessarily ones that you love, but it's just easy because you've been there for so long. But I, I would actually argue it's the other way. It's, it's more that you're a prisoner, right? It is just such a pain in the butt to change banking accounts. It is such a pain to, you know, onboard at some of these financial institutions that you just basically are like, I don't care how bad of an experience I'm willing to do it. The yeah. ease of, you know, the, the, the ease of DeFi, how easy it is to be fluid, basically allows you to be free. And, and while you could point to that and say, well, you know, therefore DeFi has a customer retention problem, you could also say that DeFi as a whole has an awesome customer experience because you are free to move around until you find one that you really like. And then once you find something that you like, 
you're going to stay, right? So, you know, it's probably better for the consumer, uh, but definitely a, a, a challenge for, you know, the, the companies and projects. Yeah, nobody, nobody moves into stable coins and then moves back to their U.S. dollar in their bank account. Right. Right. It's just a better, yeah, better user experience. One of the last questions I have, I'm not sure if Mike has anything else, is uh, actually we've been talking about the app layer a lot, but I'm curious to get your take on layer ones um, and really and really this base layer. And I think my main question is, when you look at valuing these layer ones, do you look at them more as a as a business where you're looking at uh, like cash flows basically, or do you look at them more as a economy uh, or like a country where you're valuing it on like the economy of a nation? Right. How do you how do you value and like mental model and, and like framework these kind of layer ones? Sure. And I, uh, it's a good a, a segue to maybe a future guest for you would be a, a great analyst. We have at Arca by the name of Nick Hodes, who, who wrote an article exactly that. Right. Our, our blockchain, our blockchain, we, we, February 22nd on our blog, you can find it at, at AR.ca. But it says our blockchains, businesses or nations. And he actually walks through exactly what how we look at uh, uh, these different entities. And. The answer is we look at both. Um, you know, again, valuation techniques are not meant to be. You know, you do we do one thing and that's the answer, right? It's it's usually you know, multiple different frameworks, right? Even in the equity world, right? You'll use a, a DCF analysis. You might use a comparable comps method. You might use a dividend yield model. You might use three or four different ways to come up with what is the valuation of this business. You know, we do the same thing right right now with blockchains. Um, when they first start a startup blockchain, a layer one. Obviously, you have to look at it more like a nation, right? It's the equivalent of if you found some, you know, remote island in the middle of, in the middle of the Pacific. It might have speculative value on day one, right? Because it's you know, it's it's land. You all these things you could do with it. You could build roads and, and businesses and all these different things that, that generate economic activity. Um, but it's you know, it's a it's a blank canvas, right? You have to do something with it before it has value. But then ten years later, if you actually succeed with that, and all of a sudden you have all these you know th- these things happening. Well, then you could point to, oh, look at all this tax revenue that we're creating. And now you could actually value it like a business because you have real cash flows. I think the answer is both, right? I think you, you, you know, Ethereum is a great example because Ethereum is the most mature of all the layer one blockchains in terms of, 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 of kind of being on both sides of that aisle. As a business, really easy to, to, to analyze right now, right? It's high fees. Those cash flows are real with, because of EIP 1550, because of EIP 1559, as well as, you know, heading towards the ETH 2.0 merge, you can start to really see the economic benefit of those cash flows and how it accrues back to the ETH token. So you can very easily create an ETH model and say, what are these cash flows worth? But at the same time, those cash flows are in ETH terms, which basically means that it's a currency in its own native, you know, it's, it's very circular, right? Yeah. So then you have to look at it as a nation and say, okay, well, you know, within this nation and all this uh, economic activity or GDP that is happening, um, how valuable is it to have your own native currency where everything is transacting? So we look at it both ways. Um, and, and again, it, it depends on which one you're looking at and how mature it is, whether or not uh, fees make sense or, or you know, the stickiness of that currency and the velocity of that currency within, within the nation. The, the biggest takeaway for us is that three years ago, nobody knew how to do anything in, in, in terms of valuing these things. Now we have two separate valuation methodologies that we're using, and we might have four or five in the future. Um, but they're both really helpful ways to look at the future economic growth of, of these blockchains and, and how that ultimately accrues back to the token. 
I, well, I think it's, uh, it's, it's tough. It's certainly tough to do. Um, I mean, we didn't get into talk about anything like MEV or anything like that. Like, I mean, I, my, you know, when I think about how to value something like ETH, it's like the discounted sum of all the, the future fees that accrue to the network, but, uh, obviously there are like block rewards and then there's also like MEV and value that gets extracted that way. But that's maybe a topic for another time, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> or there's, there's the, there's the Ryan, right? Ryan Sean Adams from Bankless, which is blockchains are just companies that sell blocks. Um, yeah, I like that. So yeah, and you can—I mean—you could actually run a real income statement based on that. You could say, you know, this is—you know—this is the block sales, and this is the—you know—cost of blockchain space, right. and right. Yeah. Um, you know, you can—you could can actually run a real—you know—tradfi analogy income statement there that looks very similar. Um, but I think it's just cool that there's enough people in the space now that are starting to think this way, that are starting to put that that, that work out there, um, and and starting to test these models, right? You know, don't forget all all these. Everything that we now believe is is gospel in in you know the equity and debt world like that stuff didn't exist a hundred years ago either right the uh, um, the fixed income securities bible that everyone reads was was, was created in like the sixties or seventies and and you know Graham and Dodd I think was in what the twenties or thirties uh, before that you know stocks were around for three hundred years before that that people traded without having any idea what the value was so you know it's it's the fact that this stuff in year ten. Is starting to be developed in 30 years. Every kid coming out of school is going to be forced to read the, you know, the digital asset valuation handbook, and it'll be 1,400 pages long. And you know, most of the people will skip reading it and think they'll figure it out on their own. And then they'll, you know, six years later they'll realize they need a better base and they'll read it. So, you know, we're heading in that direction where these valuation techniques are being created and they're being tested, and people are thinking of them through. Um, and you know, in 20 or 30 years. Digital asset investing will be, you know, a, a boring commodity, just like equities, where when if you give 10 analysts the exact same information, they're all going to give you the exact same outputs. Um, you know, that's what equities and fixed income look like today. That's obviously not what digital assets look like today. You give 10 digital asset investors the exact same inputs, they're going to give you wildly different outputs. And, and, you know, quite frankly, that's where the alpha comes from. Yeah. Right now, crypto moves on the memes and the narrative more than just, I think, probably the cash flows. You might argue differently, but that's, that's kind of how I see it. How long does it take for... Um, for this like fundamental investing to move into crypto, is it really twenty to thirty years, or do you think it happens faster than that? No, I think it definitely happens faster in terms of the the types of investors. I think it might be yeah. twenty or thirty years before you have an agreed upon framework. Um, but it, it, again, it, you know, we talked about at the top of the hour that that the reason Bitcoin is so correlated to the Nasdaq right now is because macro investors are dominating trading. Um, when pensions and endowments and they're coming very fast, like when they start putting their money in and when you start getting long short, you know, equity uh, managers coming in and you start having these different fundamental uh, managers coming in, then fundamentals will matter more than memes. You know, right now memes matter because this is highly dominated by macro and retail. Um, you know, as the investor base changes, uh, uh, the inputs to success and failure change as well. Yeah. Jeff, anything else you want to talk about here? Uh, no, a shout out to the great work you guys are doing. I uh, appreciate all the education you guys are doing and shout out to my team at Arca, who's, who's I think is uh, the best in the business in terms of thinking through some of these, uh, these challenging concepts. So I appreciate you having me on and, and getting a chance to talk about it. Yeah, of course, Jeff. Um, places to find you is, uh, at on Twitter at jdorman81. Arca is at Arca. And then I would recommend everyone subscribes to their newsletter, uh, the two Satoshis. Really yeah, good. That's our two so. Satoshis. Yeah. So, Jeff, thanks again for coming on. Uh, this has been awesome. And uh, yeah, be well. All right. Appreciate you guys. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Cheers.